0: You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit USIP.org and check us out on social media.
1: Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Tony, and thank you, Congressman Hall. That was, uh, sorry, thank you, Congressman Wolf. You put Tony Hall in my brain. Um, thank you very much that, for, the, for the inspirational opening um, and putting us exactly uh, in the right frame of mind. Thank you for joining us. Uh, and thank you, Tony uh, and Mike, for the partnership with uh, IRI and Search for Common Ground. There you are. Um, it's really wonderful to be able to do this event together. Uh, My name is Nancy Lindborg. I'm the president here at U.S. Institute of Peace. And I'm delighted to welcome everybody. Let me uh, repeat what Tony said, that uh, please join us on the Twitter conversation at um, hashtag IRFministerial. And a special welcome to all of you who have uh, been at the ministerial this week. It truly is, uh, has been an important gathering um, that's brought people together from across the world. For those of you who have not been at USIP before, uh, we were founded in 1984 by Congress through the conviction of uh, congressional members like uh, Congressman Wolf. um, And we were uh, founded as a uh, nonpartisan, independent, national institution dedicated to the proposition that peace is possible that it is very practical, and it requires the kind of focused effort uh, that we do by working with partners in conflict zones around the world, uh, helping them have access to the tools, the information, and the approaches that enable them to manage conflict so it doesn't become violent, and to resolve it when it does. And we know from long conviction and experience that freedom of religion is an absolute vital component for a lasting, sustained peace. Um, and in fact, in our uh, some 20 years ago, uh, we started what is now one of our longest programs, which is Peace and Religion, and a former colleague, David Little, was uh, involved with the drafting and the advising of the International um, Religious Freedom Act. So we're delighted uh, to be able to be here today. This is an issue that's near and dear to our heart. Um, We also know by conviction and experience that um, it is critical to understand the relationship between religious freedom and efforts to counter violent extremism. Uh, Violent extremism has been one of the critical uh, disruptors of peace uh, around the world, a threat, to people of many countries, including our own. And what we found, however, is that it is a complicated relationship that we need to understand so that in an effort to counter violent extremism, there isn't also an unintended suppression of religious freedom. And even in some cases, the potential to create additional resentment against the state and drive people inadvertently to more radical theologies. So these relationships need further investigation. They happen differently in different places. Um, I was very encouraged to see in the Ministerial to Advance Religious Freedom Potomac Plan of Action that it addressed this issue head on uh, by encouraging nations to increase the international understanding of how suppression of religious freedom can contribute to violent extremism, sectarianism, conflict, insecurity, and stability. So it's clearly an issue that is on the table for conversation, and it is what we will explore in depth today, and we have a really incredible, wonderful panel, and I'm very honored to be on stage. Um, We have Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayah who's really a foremost scholar on Islamic thought, Uh, We have had him here with us to discuss this topic previously. Uh, Sheikh Binbaya, welcome back to U.S. Institute of Peace. We're also joined by Reverend Professor Fadi Dao, who's chair and CEO of the Adyan Foundation in Beirut. He's an expert on inter-religious dialogue and the geopolitics of religion. Um, We have Humara Khan, who is the founder and director of MUFLA which is a leading organization on preventing violent extremism. And welcome to Oliver Cox, uh, a longtime friend and colleague. Uh, He's the the deputy director of countering violent extremism at the US Department of State. So thank you, each of you, for joining us today for this very timely conversation. We will talk... uh, I'm going to ask a few questions, um, and then we will take questions uh, that we're collecting on note cards. Um, So let me start uh, with uh, Sheikh Ben Baya and uh, Reverend Dow as religious actors, uh, Humara as your civil society expert hat, and Oliver with your government hat. Where do you see, just as a general opening question, where do you see the greatest opportunities and challenges uh, that you encounter when it comes to engaging religious actors, uh, religious institutions on the issues of countering violent extremism. And Chick Bin Bai, are we able, can we start with you?
2: بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اشكر المعهد
1: أشكر
2: هذا السلام على هذه الفرصة التي أتاح لنا مرة أخرى وهذه المرة الثانية التي أدعى فيها المعهد ليتكلم عن Kalama, Senator, قبلها the Sheikh said, first of all, just. Um
3: Bismillah, in the name of God, and then uh, extend my gratitude to the uh, Institute for Peace here. This is the second time that I've come here to speak uh, in this forum. Um, he said that the, just as Congressman Wolf said earlier, the, the problem of uh, freedom is a, is a very complex one. It's not easily, uh, there are a lot of dimensions to it, so it's not something that can be just easily understood.
2: so is
3: is the question then what is the role of religion in terms of dealing with these uh, challenges um, like violent extremism and freedom of religion is
2: That's that, is well, that well, the well, question well. you're asking me
3: or is it the role of religious freedom in societies
1: so uh, uh, uh. The question is, uh, where has he seen either problems or opportunities when the religious actors are engaged in countering violent
4: extremism? <laughs>
2: there's
3: always a problem with translations because uh, you never know if they 're getting it right so
2: <laughs> there's a lot of
3: challenges that we 're facing
2: so you're dealing
3: with the challenge of spreading religious peace but you're also dealing with the challenge of maintaining a type of social stability uh, in the midst of that so the, these are these are two challenges
2: كثير من الحروب نشأت بسبب موقف مجموعات من الناس من الحرية الدينية وعدم السماح بالحرية الدينية للأقليات التي So
3: a lot of the wars that we've had actually were the result of people uh, demanding religious freedom and also the result of minorities that have been oppressed and not allowed to uh, practice their religious
2: freedom.
3: Like was mentioned earlier, the problem with
2: the Rohingyas or the problem of the Uyghurs in China. Uh, قد تحدثنا ربما هنا عن المبادره التي قام بها اقامتها مجموعه من العلماء قبل خس, uh, قبل سنوات هذه المبادرة, uh, كانت uh, uh, تجسد في وفي اعلان مراكش لحقوق Muslim غير في ديار المسلمين. So, so
3: perhaps you've heard of this initiative that was started by uh, several scholars that were involved in actually developing uh, a policy. This was the uh, Marrakesh Declaration, which was designed to promote uh, religious pluralism uh, in, in the region where there was
2: a lot of minorities that were being persecuted. <laughs> من غير المسلمين على أهمية الحرية الدينية وممارسة الحرية الدينية اعتقاداً وممارسة للأقليات الموجودة في ديار الأغلبيات المسلمة so this group
3: gathered a significant number of scholars from within the Muslim religion, but also a very significant number of people from outside of the religion, Yazidis and others that were representative of the people that were being persecuted as well as the others. And, and they met and, and we agreed upon this uh, promotion of religious freedom in the majority Muslim uh, countries, especially those areas uh, that were, uh, the, the religious freedom was being infringed upon.
2: حاولنا So we, t- we attempted to address this
3: issue from a theological perspective.
2: And أن حبل به والذين يحاولون الدين الإسلامي. So we are,
3: what we were attempting to do was literally sever this rope that these extremists were holding on to, this idea that the Islamic religion is antagonistic to
2: religious pluralism and to minorities. النبي الخاتم صلى الله عليه وسلم قد كتبها في لما قدم الى المدينة حين هذه الصحيفه والتي تمثل مجتمعا تمثل مجتمعا مواطنه المتساويه التعاقديه So
3: we revived uh, what was actually from the the very foundation of Islam, which was the covenant of Medina. We revived this idea in which the Prophet Muhammad, uh, peace be upon him, he established a covenant of equal citizenship amongst the different uh, actors in that uh, early period. So there were different communities and, and he gave each one of them the rights and responsibilities that were equal, whether they were Muslim or from the other communities, the Jewish community and others. So one of the things that we also were addressing was citizenship, and how do we establish the grounds for
2: citizenship?
3: So I hope that uh, it'll be
2: distributed amongst you, copies of it, so you can understand what we doing.
3: We had Susan Hayward who was with us from from the uh, the Institute of Peace in Marrakesh when we actually made the
2: declaration.
3: Pastor Bob Roberts also who's here with us from the evangelical community was with
2: us. So this challenge
3: that we face from within the religion itself uh, of, of this extremism, what we were attempting to do was sever uh, that, uh, that influence uh, that they have on people. So looking at what is the normative understanding of the religion, is the religion open or is it closed? These have to be established.
2: اذا so the second
3: major challenge is the religious
2: leadership itself how does the
3: religious leadership Deliver a, a sound, intelligent, guided, and wise message to the, the, pop, the general populace.
2: التي يقدمها رسالة ولكنها يريدون
3: Especially in light of the, this narrative that the extremists are presenting, that is unfortunately has a type of appeal to young people in these conditions. So, so, so how do we address that and, 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 and uh, present a, a narrative that is actually more aligned with the uh, sound understanding of the religion? <laughs>
2: So, I feel, you know, in relation
3: to minorities in the Muslim majority countries, we actually uh, gained quite a bit of ground that we. we So, So, one of the problems, though, is how do we disseminate this understanding and how do we inculcate a higher understanding amongst the masses of
2: people? And, to and
3: so, also, another thing is how do we unite with the other religions uh, in addressing this issue as a united front? Um, because each of us have within our uh, constituencies extreme elements. So, how do we come together in
2: solidarity? And
3: so one of the ways that we tried to address that was what we call an, uh, the alliance of virtue, where we brought together uh, d- different people, especially from the Abrahamic tent, to, to uh, come together in solidarity with these agreed upon uh, values and virtues that we share as, as
2: a community. إذا الحرية المسؤولة الحريه التي تخدم السلم الاجتماعي الحريه التي تراعي كل وضع في كل بلد نحن إطفائيون صحيح نحن نؤيد الحرية لكننا في نفس الوقت نحن إطفائيون نبحث عن إطفاء الحرب في أي مكان لا نريد أن تطلق الشرارة ليحترق الناس نريد حرية متوازنة في نفس الوقت مسؤولة وباحثة عن السلم الاجتماعي وأيضا محترمة لما يسمى بالنظام العام so we we're
3: definitely in support of uh, religious freedom and freedom in general but we also have to understand our role right now is just putting out fires. We're dealing with fires of war in the region. We want a balanced freedom. We want a freedom that has its rights but also has its uh, recognized responsibilities uh, especially uh, in regards to what we would call the social
2: order. I
3: I think by now you tired. want me to just uh, shut up.
1: <laughs> 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 thank you. Thank you, Sheikh Binbaya, and thank you for your work on the Marrakesh Declaration and the Alliance of Virtue. These are both, and I commend people to look into those.
4: Um, I want to go
1: to Reverend Dow. Um, as uh, In your experience as a Christian minister in the Middle East, um, what would your advice be to policymakers and practitioners of how should they support religious actors, especially from different faiths, to work on this issue of countering violent extremism what what 's your experience and what would your good counsel be
5: Thank you. Uh, let me first of all say that how much i 'm glad to be here and uh, Uh, at the Institute of Peace. This is my first visit to the Institute. I'm really uh, happy for this. And uh, also I'm honored to be a part of this panel and uh, near Sheikh Abdullah who bayya I would like to recognize that the work he's doing is uh, really moving the situation uh, for uh, more sustainable, I would say, peace. Maybe the fruits are not directly visible today, but I'm sure that what he is doing and the whole uh, team working with him is building the future and and, uh, and uh, peace for the, in the future. So thank you. Um, answering your question, I mean, it's a very, very complex question. I would like very briefly to to say that uh, um, the relation between policymakers and religious leaders is always complex, and uh, uh, viewed from the Middle Eastern perspective, sometimes it can be even uh, not only complex but problematic, because sometimes it can uh, it can um, reflect kind of. Um, Manipulation or, or, or kind of uh, uh, looking from a policymaker makers perspective for kind of legitimacy uh, that were, will make uh, religion less credible in its in its uh, message uh, on the social level. Uh, to uh, to take the the other side of the story and the more positive I would say side of the story, um, we are witnessing nowadays and especially in the Middle East and in the Christian-Muslim relations also. Um, a, a, a huge step f- uh, forward uh, when it comes to coexistence and living together and building peace and societies, and facing extremism. Also, I would call this in, in, in uh, the Foundation. I mean the organization that I chair. Uh, we we created this concept of inclusive citizenship, which reflects, in fact, what Marrakesh Declaration is saying about the fact that uh, it's not, when I say inclusive citizenship, it's not just saying that we are all equal citizens together, but we are all uh, part of one community uh, including the whole diversity coming from different cultural religious backgrounds composing uh, this uh, this unique community. So, what I want to point here is that recently, for example, after the Marrakesh declaration in 2016, we had in 2017 a conference um, organized by Al-Azhar, where the concept also was supported um, a, a calling for the adoption, the full adoption of citizenship and inclusive citizenship in, in, in the societies. Uh, Muslim majority society or not necessarily Muslim majority societies. I mean, in in general, I would say that this concept applies also to any society today. Um, So, the relation between policymakers and religious leaders on this level is um, how they can collaborate by ensuring that inclusive citizenship has at the same time time, its um, religious legitimacy let's say, and so developing a religious discourse that give uh, uh, its legitimacy, but at the same time, the legal and political framework to be really implemented uh, within uh, societies. Uh, This, I would say, the key point today in the collaboration, possible collaboration between policymakers and religious leaders. Of course, there are so many other points, but I want to be brief for this first answer.
1: Great, thank you. Um, And so I want to go to a similar question to Humara. where in this relationship between countering violent relationship and religion do you see uh, y- you know, the most effective ways of addressing uh, the, the, the challenges? Okay,
4: I will, I'll start off by saying thank you actually to US Institute of Peace, um, our host, the International Republican Institute, as well as Search for Common Ground for having us. It's really an honor to be on this panel with, um, with my fellow panelists, and thank you, Nancy, as well. Uh, So, in terms of how do we work around this challenge space, right? And really, part of it is how do we even bring some of these stakeholders to the table to recognize that they're all stakeholders, right? In in the space I work in, both as a CSO, but then also working or engaging with policy level um, from the Union Security Council, different governments, law enforcement, et cetera. Um, One of the things we find is that there is a there is a general lack of understanding or misconception about the role of religion in actually causing violent extremism. So the starting point for many is that religion is the first factor and it's the cause of uh, violent extremism in the first place. And yet if you look at the research which is coming from the ground, Right in terms of what is actually happening with people, and this is across the spectrum of extremisms. So if you look at fascism, you look at the Al-Qaeda, ISIS, you look at the neo-Nazi movements, across the board, what we are seeing is that the factors which are creating vulnerability, the sense of who am I, identity, belonging, purpose, sense of like helplessness and lack of control, right, feelings of social discrimination, marginalization, relative deprivation, you know, all of those aspects, those are the the grievances that are starting the quest for something. And then when someone is looking, right, they're struggling with life, and then they start looking, the question is, what will pull them in? In some cases, we see gangs, Some, in some cases, it's... it's it's uh, drugs you name it social evils but now we have violent extremist groups as part of our menu options which means that when you're trying to do prevention right religion ends up being a protective factor because it can actually increase the the barriers to entry against violence right and so we have to understand the role of it first and that's usually not the starting point right and when the first response of many governments has actually been, well, either we should have no religion, religion should be excluded from the the space entirely, or if they're including religion, the assumption is there is only one form of religion and they should be the one controlling it. So top-down control from governments on what is an acceptable form of religion, actually it's restricting the religious freedom space. And so, even having everyone come to the table and have a common understanding of the dynamics which are actually playing out on the ground, working with the communities and understanding what is actually happening on the ground, that's the first step. And that's, once we can overcome that, it really helps because then you can move past a lot of the suspicions and the distrust in terms of should you want to be at the table and actually making the table bigger. And once, and reality is, if you're trying to prevent or counter violent extremism, we need alliances. These are going to be partnerships which are going to include governments, they're going to include the full spectrum of civil society, private sector, and religion, right, necessarily. Religion, religious, the whole space of religion, right, this, religion is the moral compass for society right those those values are essential and if we are going to try and create these resilient communities and societies we need that space and we need to have that space where people can be belong to any faith or no faith and be an equal citizen right i am not less of a citizen because of my faith right and so i think part of it is is reframing some of how we understand this space so we're not pitting um, religion and religious freedom against security. So.
1: so, Oliver, I saw you nodding your head, um, but I want to ask you you know, Humar is talking about the assumption that religion is part of the problem um, without going deeper into the particular drivers. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on engaging religious actors to create counter narratives, to be to provide a different vision for what the opportunities are, where have you, where have you seen that work well? Where do what do you see as the pitfalls? I mean, I know that has been an approach certainly that that many governments have used. Um, what's been your experience with that?
4: Well,
0: thanks, uh, Nancy, and thanks to the institute for organizing this uh, session and including me. Um, I think that uh, the counter narratives work uh, for countering violent extremism in general uh, is very important. It's one of a number of uh, lines of effort that we have in countering violent extremism or countering terrorist radicalization and recruitment. Equally important is uh, working in and with communities face-to-face because there uh, is a lot of research to show that radicalization and recruitment Uh, still require that personal and still often face-to-face element and relationship um, to bring somebody who may be vulnerable uh, to become a a sympathizer or a supporter. So that obviously can happen online, but in many places, it still happens face-to-face as well. So uh, the different areas of countering violent extremism are linked uh, and should be increasingly linked, but um, I would like to uh, disagree a little bit with Homero on one point. I think there is a uh, growing understanding and appreciation of the range of factors that can drive radicalization and recruitment. Uh, I think we all agree that ideas matter ideology matters uh, in this case uh, but there are other social psychological uh, political economic and and other factors that are work uh, at work and as we know uh, we have to look at the local context to see which drivers may be the most salient Um, it makes our collective work even more difficult when uh, analysts and researchers who know this subject well tell us that even in the same community uh, what may drive one individual to become uh, radicalized or recruited may differ somewhat from uh, another individual so we have to look at um, not just the community level but uh, the the individual levels as well i'd like to just touch on a couple of other what i think are opportunities and challenges here um, from what we've seen Uh, around the world, Uh, as Umaira mentioned, obviously religious leaders are one partner. Uh, CVE, to be effective, has to be a whole of community, whole of society, whole of government approach, and religious leaders, like other actors, bring something to the table. And so increasingly, the future of what is effective is, uh, as I think you put it, Umaira, what Who's in the alliance? Who's sitting around the table? What are they bringing to the table? How are they pulling their efforts uh, and and doing this as a multi-sectoral approach? The problem is multi-dimensional, therefore the response um, has to be multi-dimensional as well. Um, So I think that's actually an opportunity as well as uh, a challenge. Uh, Obviously doing this kind of work, there are um, sensitivities regarding um, the security of those that are engaged in doing it at the local level. Uh, it can be their physical security, their political security, uh, reputational uh, risks, but uh, the people doing this work on the ground um, often recognize that, and uh, we, we of course have to be um, sensitive uh, to that. I think one of the big challenges here is uh, the appeal to youth and the sheikh mentioned uh, the appeal to youth and this is where the research is so important because as adults uh, over pick your age 35 or 40 um, we are increasingly removed from what appeals to a 15 year old or an 18 year old uh, and and this tends to be the age span where uh, where vulnerability Uh, grows and where we still have an opportunity to intervene. So understanding not only what drives radicalization, but also what appeals to youth, uh, I think is a challenge, not just for religious leaders, but for for all of us.
1: Great. Thank you, Oliver. And um, Humera, I want to go back to you, because both you and Oliver alluded to this core tension between... The security concerns and the the freedom to practice your religion. So, how does civil society engage in addressing the challenge of 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 violent extremism and the security threat that it represents, while also keeping an eye on preserving the core freedom to practice one's religion? How do you think about that? How do, how have you seen that balance work, or how have you navigated that challenge?
4: Uh, it's very hard to find the balance, and in most uh, in most contexts where it's playing out, it's not a happy balance at all. And it's certainly dynamic. Um, the and part of this is is perhaps the way the the space of countering violent extremism even evolved, and because it started off as an offshoot of counterterrorism, the responses or the the tactics and tools which were used tended to be very um, military and law enforcement heavy. And it has been a fight, again, to even get, open the space up and actually move some of those tactics away. The security challenge is always there, um, but I think part of that is that um, CVE, right, or actually religious freedom, I'm going to talk about religious freedom, especially that, um, is that we We need to be upholding human rights, right? And that has to be done whether we're talking about just the security side, whether we're talking about countering violent extremism, whether we're talking about any aspect of this space. And we have to make sure that those are upheld. So if we are actually doing security well, we would actually be upholding the whole spectrum of human rights and CVE programming would actually also be compliant. Now that doesn't take away the risk to actually the stakeholders or the implementers on the ground, because at the end of the day, you're dealing with people who hate you for what you what you're doing, right? They have a vested interest. A politi- like, these are polit- this political violence, right? So there's a vested interest in terms of the outcomes. Um, so we absolutely have to deal with with that space, right? How do you keep people on the safe on the ground? The other challenge that we face is. When civil society starts to engage in this space, um, it ends up uh, often being co-opted or contaminated by the idea that you are now a, a stooge for the government. Yeah? And so the assumption then becomes that if you're actually trying to work in your own community just for safety, security, you are somehow doing something against the government. And so the, again, and this goes back to, there's a lot of assumptions that Uh, CVE is necessarily, cannot possibly uh, uphold human rights. And it's rights of not just religious freedom, but also on privacy and um, freedom of thought, a whole spectrum of issues. Um, So we grapple with it all the time. We have seen there are certain places where the way they have dealt with it is by changing the labels, right? So instead of acknowledging the intent of the program, they have relabeled it as something else, but that sort of deception for the community always comes back and bites you later. We have seen the, the uh, co-opting of other agendas, so things like women's empowerment, women's education, um, voting rights, etc., have suddenly been relabeled as CVE, and that has also contaminated agendas, because those are things which you have to do no matter what whether you were dealing with violent extremism or not. So, again, the, this, this space which has spread out to be everything, right, has actually made the situation worse. And in dealing with the top-down, very coercive, controlling um, counterterrorism tactics, which in many cases have actually backfired, and have actually been the cause of more grievances has actually made it worse. So it's, uh, there's no balance. <laughs> there's no balance which anyone has achieved and everyone is constantly struggling in that
1: space. So I wanna go back to Oliver really quickly because your office has worked with ministries of religion around the world. Um, have you seen examples of where that challenge has been navigated well or not well? Uh, of you know, adre- doing doing what we see in the new uh, Pot- Potomac Plan of Action of ensuring that false accusations of extremism are not used as a pretext to suppress the freedom of individuals to express their religious beliefs.
0: Well, I think uh, some in the room may be familiar with CDE national action plans, or sometimes they're called national strategies, and. Uh, They're being developed and uh, increasingly being implemented in dozens of countries around the world, uh, from Western Europe to Sub-Saharan Africa to different parts of Asia. And the idea here is that uh, you have security and non-security components of government, uh, and that would include uh, in countries where you have a ministry or religious affairs department, uh, that they would be part of the effort and to the extent that those processes can be um, really whole of government and really engaging with uh, society and with civil society actors and then can be implemented uh, moving forward, uh, you have a framework and you have a a political commitment and buy-in from from the top to uh, do this work and to do it In ways that try to navigate these these various sensitivities uh, that uh, that we've been talking about and that we've been touching on Uh, that is is a framework and the different UN agencies and uh, a number of Western governments are supporting or providing the technical assistance to you know develop uh, or I should say to assist other governments in developing and implementing uh, these plans, but the, the, the trick, of course, is, is in the implementation.
1: And so, with that, I want to go back to Sheikh Bin Baya, who's both, you are both a renowned uh, Islamic scholar, but you're also a former government official in Mauritania. And so, I would love to hear your perspective.
2: Uh, this
3: issue again is uh, another very complicated
2: uh, issue uh,
3: the thing that i would advise
2: is that you have to study each each
3: each country has its own specific problems. channel six channel six yeah Yeah, Channel One. Yeah. So, so like I said, this it's it's another complicated problem, and and what I would suggest or is that every situation needs to be studied independently. So every country has its own independent conditions. If you want to, uh, to get involved in one region or in a country, you have to study the, the conditions of that country, its mentality,
2: it's because, for instance, for instance, religious freedom, the, the,
3: the, the, the nature of it actually differs in different places if there's a lot of very strong intervention there'll actually be a reaction that could be very negative and then the actual results could be even worse
2: so th- this
3: freedom that we want and that we're all seeking in in certain situations could end up creating if if there's an attempt to force it upon people it'll it'll upset uh, the the uh, the social order, and so but, and and also we can't generalize this principle in every situation. the 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 United States needs to understand that the world is different, and there's there's certain things that are relative to different countries. um, There are absolutes, but there are also situations that are uh, nuanced socially. Uh, For instance, you have uh, organizations and you have uh, authorities on the ground, and they might understand their situation better than people outside. And if you want to take certain things and try to implement them, and you don't fully comprehend the situation on the ground, it can end up uh, creating a lot of problems and having negative uh, effects.
1: Great, thank you for that. Um, Reverend, yes, yes. Context is everything (laughs) and do no harm. I think really important principles. Reverend Dow, um, I want to go to you on a slightly different topic because you've done a lot of work on inclusive societies. And in particular, trying to bring different uh, diverse uh, actors together. And, and I'm interested particularly in the work you've done to bring older religious actors together with youth um, to, to bridge that gap that often exists. What, how, how have you seen that work?
5: It was so a counter narrative to to extremism and violent extremism. I think one of the major challenges for religions and religious leaders is that um, um, it's a kind of weaknesses within the religious narrative uh, in the framework of of CVE because in general religious narrative is um, um, is more a preaching narrative. And more uh, I would say related to an uh, kind of absolute truth that is being preached to uh, to the society um, why, when we we worked with youth and religious leaders, and we studied the situation i mean and why youth are and especially youth attracted by Extremist narratives. I mean, so we put them together with religious leaders, and we try to initiate this dialogue. And uh, I'm still remembering this answer from one of the youths. He was was saying to the addressing the religious leaders and telling them, "Look at the film of ISIS. Uh, what they show in their films? First, they show the action." And then they finished the film by quoting some verses and saying, this action was according to this teaching. And this young man was saying, telling religious leaders in a very strong way, what you do is always the opposite. You start by the teaching, and then we don't see the action. And this is why we are more attracted by those who are called extremists, ISIS or things like this. So what we tried to develop with them, in fact, we we came out with with a concept that we called existential narrative. Because the counter-narrative has its own weaknesses because it's a preaching narrative and it's not yet showing the action. While an existential narrative is always engaging youth, engaging community and not just those who preach, not just the leadership, but engaging youth community with their also religious leadership. I will um, very briefly um, uh, give you an example. We identified a, um, a two young uh, people in Upper Egypt, in the Sa'id, a very remote area, uh, in a village where there had been have been many conflicts between Copts and Muslims. Copts trying to build a church, Muslims build this church, and they, they were victims in this in this village. We we two persons, uh, um, uh, one uh, Coptic man and a, and a Muslim woman, working together very simply on peace education uh, for the use of the village, together, Christian and Muslim, in the place of this church, or tra- where they are trying to build the church. We simply went there, we filmed them, we, uh, we uh, um, put online two minutes uh, film of their stories. In one week they got more than two million views. And then they, were, they, they became a national story. Everybody in Egypt started talking about uh, uh, Samer and Hannah. They were received by a TV channel. And then the Ministry of Youth and Education gave them this year the, the award of uh, coexistence. I mean, the heroes of, for coexistence. And so they became model for so many other uh, cops or Muslims in Egypt to do the same. And now, I mean, religious leaders who, with whom we work, they start their preaching by showing the story by saying I mean there are acts we are able to make difference on the ground and this this story is based in the gospel and that's this teaching and in the Quran and this teaching this is exactly I would say the strategy of extremists uh, and it's so important for two reasons and I, I will finish with this first reason it's so important because it it uh, rebuilds the bridges between the grassroots level and the leadership so so the the religious leaders are not just preaching uh, in an abstract way, they are talking about the life of their communities and the community also is based on the, on the, on the teaching is trying to live and to show something that they are being lived. Uh, it's being lived. This is the first level of importance. And second level of importance is what I call inter-religious social responsibility, uh, the, which uh, moves the narrative from a stigma. Where we usually in these societies we accuse a community uh, to be responsible of of the extremism or of uh, uh, violence that is happening in society. We move it. We move the narrative to the responsibility of people of faith, how they can face together uh, the challenges where these challenges are not anymore identified to a community, but to, to their direct source of problems. The people who are causing, the extremists who are causing these problems are not any community that is responsible of these problems.
1: Thank you. Um, we have a whole pile of questions and not much time, so we're going to, I'm going to ask people to try to give a short answer so we can get to a number of these, but here's, here's the the first one: Can hate speech or insightful rhetoric be justified under religious freedom?
4: Big question. Big question. Let
1: me ask another one. You think about the answer. If it were, no, no, no. We're going to come back to that. But I'm going to give you a minute to think about it. Maybe
5: the sheikh
4: could answer uh, that. Oh.
2: A
3: very difficult question.
2: Mm -hmm. Freedom
3: is always something that uh, an insan, when he feels that he's absolutely free, sometimes he'll go uh, to an extreme or or go beyond uh, the the norms of a society. So it goes back to really standards and,
2: and normative
3: practices in a society. So people should understand that they're they're part of a society and we have to educate people. We have to have a balanced type of education where people don't use their freedom to uh to do things that are harmful. Uh, let me add something to this. I I like what uh, Father Fatih said you know to, to, to give uh, awards to people that are doing these actions we for instance we gave a award to uh, some priest in Central African Republic because they've done incredible work helping conviviality between Muslims and Christians so when you find religious leadership that that have influence in a society and that that are balanced and are teaching people in a good way, uh, and we should support their work and make sure that, th- that they're honored. Uh, we, can't, we can't control people's thoughts uh, and we can't control their actions, but we can help uh, uh, to illuminate their thoughts and to better their actions.
1: Thank you. Well, this might be a related question. Um, many Americans still see violent extremism as an issue specifically within Islam. Has using non-religious terms like countering violent extremism and community resilience been helpful in changing public perception? And what is the role of the media in broadening the definition and understanding of violent extremism beyond any one religion or beyond religion in general? Anyone like to tackle that?
5: You guys are tough.
1: (laughs) And,
5: and, and I would like to ask not directly about this question, but in, in, um, about the previous one, in fact, and and it's related to this question also, but um, I mean, in liberal societies, it's, it's very normal uh, uh, for people to believe and to say something that is really, um, can be a, a harming uh, morally, I would say, harming the others. I mean, And this is a huge uh, issue between the, and Sheikh, Sheikh Abdullah was saying that we should talk about and defend religious freedom, but also with civil peace and, and social peace, and, and try to, to, to keep them together. It's not just, uh, meaning that we have to put a condition for religious freedom. Religious freedom is, is absolute, but uh, when I am practicing my religious freedom, I should be aware also that... Uh, and, and religious freedom is about practicing religion, and practicing religion is about being responsible. And first responsibility of a believer is is to to to, to preserve peace and harmony within within society. And this is why I think we we should. Definitely, I would always and absolutely defend the right for religious freedom, but at the same time, we should do the same efforts also um, within each community uh, and socially also to make people responsible of their acts and their, uh, and their expressions also when it offends uh, the others. And this is a huge problem. I mean, it was, we, we worked on it two years uh, with, with experts from different communities, especially Christian and Muslim, uh, about the issue of takfir. I mean accusing the other of being a disbeliever uh, how how this accusation which is based also on religious freedom I, I can believe whatever I want I mean about, about the others and their and their beliefs but how this uh, attitude and this uh, this way of thinking um, is um, can we how we can show that it's counterproductive for faith itself and so how we can make from religious freedom a challenge for theology And to go for a more inclusive theology and more inclusive uh, theological uh, development. I think this is a crucial question. I wanted to go back to this question because the second one, I think it was more related to maybe American context, but definitely um, perceptions are, are, are very powerful. And working on perception is a, is a top priority, either in, in the society here in the United States or everywhere in the world. I mean, media is something that has a huge power, and we are still lacking in using media, I mean, the power of media uh, to, to spread the message we want, we want to spread it. Just to give you an example, we launched last year, Nadian Foundation, a platform called Ta'adudiyya, which means pluralism. Um, uh, online platform. Uh, our aim, I mean, the aim I gave the, the, the target I gave to the team of this of this platform. That it's to reach one million people from the Arab world in one year. In one year, the result was we reached 23 million persons, which was an amazing and very surprising result. And for me, it's, it's a clear answer that, especially the young people, because out of these 23 million, 65% are between 18 and 35 years old, which means that the youth in the Arab world are looking for uh, these values of pluralism and, 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 and this, this narrative that, that is based on pluralism and inclusivity, but they are not easy, they cannot easily find these on the online media. And this is why, I mean, it's crucial also to give the place the media deserves in this battle.
1: Thank you. Um, I'm gonna add another question and Oliver and Humar, you can answer whichever of the other two or this one. Uh, Advice for practitioners, what have you seen go wrong with approaches uh, on religious engagement by international agencies and NGOs? A- any, any of the questions
4: on the table? <laughs> I'll take the second question. <laughs> like jeopardy. That's the, the sort of... Um, and that's around the labels, right? The labels, the language, changing labels, the role of media. So, well, communities are smart, right? Changing the label from countering violent extremism to now calling it community engagement to then calling it community resilience people get it <laughs> they understand that they are trying to be duped in that sense right so no has it helped no has it and part of this is that if the baseline you do not have a trusted relationship between the governance and the population right there is always going to be suspicion and so the relabels are never going to be sufficient so there's a place where Again, the state has to have, build relationships with society. And, Humar, just so we get one more question,
1: yeah. if it's related to that, how do we motivate those in power to be inclusive?
4: Ah, that's another one. And <laughs> Oh that's, that's a whole other one. Um, but, but I also want to take this actually back to, the, to what happens with media. Right? And, and is it only, when we talk about violent extremism, the assumption is it's only about, it's related to Al-Qaeda, ISIS, et cetera, right? The black flaggers, the whole spectrum of black flagger movements. And yes, media has a role to play with it, but certainly so do our legal systems, and so do policy-making bodies. If you look at the, Uni- the United Nations Security Council, right and the preamble for pretty much every res- resolution which comes out, it says, this is not about any one religion, do not discriminate against any religion. And yet, when it defines what it is you're looking at, it restricts it to Al Qaeda, Daesh, and affiliates. So it actually does not open the space to other types of violent extremist groups, even though they are alive and thriving in so many countries, right? So it's it's at that level, in the media space. And I'm going to let me talk about the U.S. context because we have a very special context over here, because if you look at, for example, when Dylan Roof. He shot, he killed so many people in the church. Right? He was charged with a hate crime and not with domestic terrorism. And the question is why? Because the media will report what is actually happening in the courts. But why is that? And that's because in our legal system, at the federal level, right, we have a definition of domestic terrorism, but there are no criminal charges associated with it. So they can't, they can't even prosecute him for domestic terrorism because the prosecutors don't have the tools for it. So what you end up with is when the media reports, so if it's a Muslim, it's going to be, here is the terrorist charges because it's associated with a foreign terrorist organization and it gets a, a terrorism label. But then if you look at the domestic cases which are happening, the domestic with other groups, the white supremacists, etc., the, with the tools like I just don't even exist, and so the legal system has a huge role to play in how we manage the space. Yes, media has a role; it certainly sensationalizes, but they are not the only stakeholders in the space.
1: Great, thank you. Um, we're we're out of time, but Oliver, I want to give you a chance to weigh in on some very provocative questions.
0: So globally, uh, the terminology differs from country to country. There are debates within and across countries about, is it preventing violent extremism, countering violent extremism? in uh, many in Western Europe call it counter radicalization and have done so for years. Uh, but the interesting thing is that as soon as you stop talking about terminology and you start talking about the nature and the substance of the response, people are pretty much on the same page. You talk about what makes for an effective counter-narrative or doesn't. Uh, what makes for good community engagement Or what doesn't Uh, then people are on the same page and the conversation uh, flows uh, because you're talking about responses and uh, people can agree Uh, and in some cases it's almost intuitive that multiple actors in a community not just religious leaders but educators and social workers and youth themselves all have to be involved in this effort and it's very hard to disagree with uh, with sort of Uh, almost intuitive uh, approaches like that if you're going to do this work effectively. Um, On the media, I think that um, there have been a lot of media training programs uh, around the world that have been going on for decades, and journalists are taught skills like investigative reporting and this sort of thing, and to the extent that that can be applied to understanding terrorism, radicalization, recruitment, what drives it, what doesn't, and being able to help inform media or journalists by getting them together with researchers locally who know this topic, I think that that would be very helpful.
1: Great, thanks, Oliver. Uh, Sheikh Binba, I want to give you the last word. If you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with us on um, maybe words of, of encouragement, Uh, on how to best move forward with this challenge.
3: In the name of God. Uh, These dialogues are very important but maybe even more important is we 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 basically create small groups so we can look for put putting new approaches and 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 new solutions to these problems we can talk around the same issues and and we can talk to a lot of different groups but very often we don't see the fruits of these things You have tens of uh, institutes. Uh, If they visited, uh, for instance, Abu Dhabi, if they visited us there, or our center in in, uh, Morocco, they, they have questions, and they visited different places, then it would be possible for them to kind of get a sound understanding on the ground of what's happening. Each of us know uh, what's happening in our areas, especially things surrounding uh, freedom and trying to prevent extremism. But have we arrived together, all of us? we, we we some of us have arrived and understand these problems we have a group in morocco that's working on concepts we have 50 students that are just uh, dealing with the concepts uh, of these issues so for instance, the concepts surrounding extreme, extremism, and also to, to do a type of uh, renewal of just religious discourse, to, to create a, a, a new uh, religious discourse that we can reach large numbers. For instance, in the Forum for Promoting Peace, uh, we're now, we've started an encyclopedia of peace, uh, and we have a, a journal called Peace, so we're, we're, we have also coexistence. Um, we're trying to promote these these values. If we want to really strengthen these, uh, and to really form a, a leadership that can promote these, and then they we can treat uh, we can we can basically train the trainers so that they can go out and then have a much broader influence.
2: Uh, this alliance of virtue, for instance, we have
3: some of the leadership here, Bob Roberts and others. Imam Majid didn't come today, but uh, he's also involved in that.
2: Yeah, yeah
3: He's preoccupied. So this this could could really do a lot of good because we're trying to give examples for people. Uh, we need a, a a religious leadership that says we're we're we're, we're friends. We're together. We're we're all on the same planet. We're all living in the same planet. You there's now we're living in a time you can't choose who you're living next to. Uh, we're we're in a new world and 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 so we should uh, be sharing it together
1: give a quick thank you also to the wonderful usip peace and religion team susie Pawasha, melissa thank you um and uh, once again we invite everyone to join us in the leland terrace which is just up the stairs Um, have some refreshments learn more about the work of usip iri and search for common ground and we will begin our next panel on interfaith peace building and religious freedom back here at 1.15. Um, And for those who would like to participate in Friday prayers, we have space downstairs in the PeaceLink room, and our team will guide you to that space. Thank you, everybody, and see you soon.
0: Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org slash podcasts.